0: Andy Brownlee taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andy took us through the early church and middle ages periods of church history. Andy's one of the elders and site leaders at Christchurch Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Well, good, e- good morning, everyone. I almost said good evening, everyone, uh, Good morning, it's great that you could join us here this morning at, uh, at School of Theology. Uh, great you could join us this morning as I mentioned things are going to be slightly different in the sense that we're going to spend our whole morning this morning uh, talking about school of well school of theology we're going to spend the whole morning talking about church history so basically this morning we are going to be looking at church history we're going to uh between now and about 10 past 12 uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna kind of basically share the story of the church from Jesus right up to the present day. So that's 2,000 years of church. Well, oh, 2,020 something. 2,000 years of church history in three hours. Now, some people in the past have said to me, oh, "You're crazy for even attempting this." I think someone said to me recently it was like. Andy, you're covering 10 years of church history every minute, okay? So that's kind of what we're going to attempt today. So we're not going to cover everything. It is going to be an overview. So like the one bit of feedback you can't say is, hey, you missed something out, or you didn't cover this, or you didn't spend long enough on this, because there's no way we can. I'm going to try and give you a broad sweep of church history, um, and there'll be a kind of a few... A few kind of uh, book review, book book recommendations at the end. So if you want to do some more reading on that, uh, you can. So the other different thing is that normally I'm just hosting our meetings, uh, but actually I'm doing the speaking. It's just all me this morning. So uh, we don't have any outside speaker. It's just me. So maybe that's that's kind of the cheap version, isn't it? Really, just having me on. But uh, yeah, so I'm gonna be uh, gonna be doing that. We're gonna have our probably our first discussion time about the year three hundred we'll probably have a coffee break about the year 1000, and then like a second discussion time about like the year 1600. So you can almost kind of measure where we are by what date we're on, you know? So once you get into the 1900s, you'd be like, okay, we're nearly done. So that's kind of the way we can we can measure how we're going. You should have all had handouts. There's plenty of space to, to write in those handouts. Uh, so do feel free if you've printed them out to take notes on there. If you've got them on your screen, type up on your screen. Uh, there as well, uh, so do feel free uh, to to do that. Um, yeah, so so that's that's essentially what we're gonna gonna do this morning. We're gonna do church history. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're go- then we're gonna kick off. As I always say beforehand, if you can keep your video on, it helps me know there's someone actually out there listening to me. And if you can keep yourself muted so that it means if you've got a squeaky chair or whatever, uh, we're not all going to hear that. That would be would be fantastic. So that's how we're going to going to roll this morning. So I'm just going to pray and then and then we'll we'll kick off. It's all right. So. Lord, yeah, I mean. we come here this morning to to Lord, learn about your people, to learn about church history, to learn about uh, the story of your church and your faithfulness to it it's your bride, um, yeah, all the great stories that have happened over the centuries, uh, great Christians who have done great things for you, and, and Christians who have done not so great things for you as well, Lord, so I pray that you'd help us to engage this morning with this, with this narrative, to have fun, to learn some stuff, and really to grow in our faith as we, as, as we learn together this morning, oh, man. amen, amen. <clears throat> So uh, some of you might be sitting here thinking, "Okay, Andy, why are you spending an entire morning studying church history? This is a school of theology. There's a little bit of a a deviation from 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 theology. Well, a few reasons. Firstly, because studying church history reminds us that it's not all about us. You know, when you study church history, you realize you, you begin to realize that millions and millions of Christians have lived and died for Jesus long before you were even born. Which, I don't know about you, but reminds me of just how small a cog in God's big plan to redeem the world I really am. And I think that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing for us to be reminded of. Another reason for studying church history is because it shows us what sacrifice looks like. You know, the reality is many of us don't have to sacrifice a lot to be a Christian today. honest with ourselves that's true but we're going to learn about a lot of people today who had to sacrifice a lot to live for Jesus now I don't know about you but I always find those kind of stories really really inspiring and also a little bit a little bit challenging as well studying church history also helps us to not like repeat mistakes from the past you know so I'm just looking at who we've got on here they're Marion let's say for example Marion who's with us this morning said Andy you know what, I've got a great idea. Why don't we do a special offering at church and use it to raise an army and go to Jerusalem and start a big war in the Middle East? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Wouldn't that be a good use of church funds, Andy? Well, church history helps us say to someone like Marian, Marian, you know, some people tried that a long time ago. It's called the Crusades and it didn't go so well. So it's probably not a good idea. So church history helps us learn mistakes from the past. And church history also shows us, and I love this, that God uses ordinary, flawed, broken people to bring about his plan. You know, I don't know if you know this, but none of the big names in church history were perfect. You know, Martin Luther was a bit rude. Uh, John Wesley wasn't a great husband. You know, there's no perfect big names in here apart from Jesus. And we're kind of starting from after him anyway. There's no perfect people in this story, but God still uses broken and flawed people to bring about his plan, which I think is awesome. And is encouraging for all of us. It really is. So studying church history also reminds us, if you haven't had enough reasons to study church history this morning, studying church history also also reminds us um, of the importance of the gospel, you know, like many times throughout history, the church has lost sight of the gospel and focused on other things. And as a result, it's lost its way. And then someone has called it back to focus on the gospel, and the church has been renewed. And I think that's a, a great reminder for us all in our individual lives to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on the gospel but I think the thing I love most about studying church history is that it shows us that no matter how crazy stuff gets in the world God is still in control he has a plan for his church and he is working it out even when it's hard for us to see and the nice thing about church history is we can kind of like you can kind of like see the plan of God you know because we can see like you know a thousand years later what happened and what it led to whereas in our present time we can't see that so church history is kind of helpful for that I I quite like that so this morning we're going to learn about lots of interesting people some did good things and some not so good Uh, and maybe one day you know you'll get to heaven and you'll meet some of the people you learn about today and you'll say you know hey. I learned about you in School of Theology in 2021. I just want to say well done for what you did. Or depending on who the person is, you might get to heaven and say, hey, I learned about you in School of Theology in 2021. And and let me tell you, I did not expect to see you in heaven. I'll be honest with you. (laughs) So we're going to learn about the good guys. We're going to learn about the bad guys. Um, Yeah, and someone else has just put in the chat here. I have a whole list of questions for those people in heaven before us. Okay, yeah, that's that's a a good, good question now. My hope this morning, really, ultimately, is that we will be inspired by church history, which ultimately is is our story, because we are part of the church. So, hands up if you're ready to get started. Yes, that also is an indicator that you can hear me, that you're with me. Um, Great. So, we're going to get started. Now, one of the things you probably think of when you hear the word history is dates and maybe that fills you with dread, reminds you of being in history class and school and all the dates that you couldn't remember. Now, uh, there are going to be a lot of dates to remember this morning, so that's just a heads up. But I'm going to start with an easy one, okay? Now, I need someone uh, to unmute themselves and tell me this, okay? This is not, this is me actually asking a question, okay? Easy question, not a trick question, just helps me with this. What date is it today? What year is it today? 2021 2021 yes 2021 years from what roughly jesus birth yes again no trick questions yes 2021 uh 22 years from jesus birth absolutely yes now let me just see um yeah now the dating system that we use and that is used across the world today is centered on the birth of Jesus. Now, the world hasn't always used this dating system. It was actually invented by a Russian monk called Dionysius in the early 500s. And he basically, he worked out that when, when Christ was born, and he called that year one, Or 1 AD. AD stands for Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. Pretty much when the Lord was born. That means the Lord was born. So everything that happened after Jesus' birth, Dionysius dated according to how long it happened after Jesus' birth. And had AD put after it. So if something happened 100 years after Jesus' birth, it would, you know, we'd say that happened in 100 AD. Something happened 500 years after Jesus' birth, he would say that happened in 500 500 AD. Likewise, everything that happened before Jesus' birth, Dionysius dated according to how long it happened before Jesus' birth and had the letters BC put after. BC stands for before Christ. Quite easy, before Christ. So something happened 100 years before Jesus' birth he would have said that that happened in 100 BC, 100 years before Christ. If something happened 500 years before Jesus' birth, he would have said that happened 500 BC, 500 years before Christ. So Dionysius made the birth of Christ the date by which all other dates in the world would be measured against. Now, it took a while, but eventually everyone adopted Dionysius's dating system. Now, before then, there was this complicated dating system, which I still don't understand, called the indiction dating system, if you Google it and honestly spend an hour studying it, you'll still be none the wiser what dates were back then. But anyway, this kind of really simplified things. And by 664, England had adopted Dionysus's dating system. By the 960s, the popes in Rome had all adopted Dionysus's dating system. By the 1300s, Spain had adopted it, and by the 1400s, the Greeks, kind of the last ones, they had adopted it as well. And eventually, just the whole the world really was was running on this as the as the as the the, the known world, I suppose, was running on this this dating system. Okay, so we all got that. Thumbs up. Few thumbs up. Yes. Okay. Now, here's where it gets a little bit complicated. Okay. Maybe you need to have a sip of coffee, all right? This is where we're going to get a bit complicated. Now, Dionysius probably got his date for Christ's birth wrong. Now, historians reckon that Christ was actually born four years earlier than Dionysius thought, which, I mean, and let's not be harsh on Dionysius here. I mean, he, you know, this is before Google. I mean, he wasn't far out. I mean, this is in 500. But they reckon that Christ was actually born four years earlier than Dionysius thought, which means you have this odd thing where historians have to say that Jesus was was born in 4 BC. Now that doesn't mean he was born four years he was four years early for his birth, but that he was born four years before Dionysius thought he was born. Okay, so Mary, whoever shouted out last time, I need you again. So if Jesus was born in 4 B.C. and he died at the age of 33, we would say that Jesus died in when? 30 B.C. No, 29 B.C. 29 B.C. Yes, 29 B.C. And that's where we pick up the story today. I'm going to take you from 29, not B.C., 29 B.C., I said, sorry, 29 A.D. Please please feel free to correct me. 29 A.D. And that's where we pick up the story. And I'm going to take you from 29 A.D., Right up to the present day. Now, I've divided our morning into four sections to kind of make it easier. They're all in your notes. Um, I've kind of put a bit of yellow coloring in them so you can kind of see them pretty obviously. The first section is from the year 29 to 590. We're going to call that the era of the early church. And basically, what happens in that, that period is the gospel just goes viral. Uh, and, and what we also see is some heresy creep in so people saying wrong things about what the bible says and there had to be a defense of the truth so they had to be like okay no, this is what we believe this is what the bible says then we have the period of the middle ages between 590 and 1517 the best way i can describe the middle ages is things go a bit messy you know things go a bit wrong <laughs> i mean that's that's a that's a grand uh, simplification but things go a bit wrong in, in the middle ages then you have the Reformation, which is from 1517 to 1648, which is quite a short little little section, but a lot of stuff happens in there, and that's really the rediscovery of the authority of the Bible, which which it kind of got lost over many years. And then we're going to look at the modern church, which is 600, uh, 1648 to the present day, which just sees massive mission and revival kind of characterise that period of church history. So first section, the early church from 29 AD to 590 AD. So the gospel goes viral on the defense of the truth. Now let's, let's start by talking about the church in Jerusalem, back in, in the early, back in Acts really. In Acts 2, uh, seven weeks after Jesus has ascended, back to heaven we have the pentecost festival uh, there's 120 believers disciples are there in jerusalem they're in home they're at home the holy spirit falls people hear the gospel in their own language Three thousand people are saved just read the book of acts it's all there and what happened is the church began to grow steadily after this we read in acts that people were added daily to the number steady growth steady growth now at this point christians were all jews There were basically all Jews who had discovered, oh, wow, Jesus is the Messiah, and they became Christians. But they're all from a Jewish heritage, Jewish background. Now, what happened was tensions begin to arise in Jerusalem at this time between the non-Christian Jews and the Christian Jews. Okay, so the Jews who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Jews who do believe Jesus is the Messiah, who essentially become Christians. And this leads to Stephen, uh, which you read in Acts chapter 7, Stephen being killed in the year 36 AD by the non-Christian Jews. The Jews just didn't like this guy who was going around telling everyone that they needed to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And Stephen is the first Christian to be killed for their faith. Five years later, James, the disciple, who's the brother of, of John, he's killed too. And things start getting pretty dangerous for Christians in Jerusalem at this time. As a result, many of them leave at this time, among them, John and Peter, the disciples. Peter goes to a city called Antioch, to the north of Jerusalem, and then on to Corinth and eventually on to other cities in Turkey. And eventually he ends up in, in Rome. After Peter fled... James the brother of Jesus he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem but in the year 62 he too was killed for his faith and for a while the church in Jerusalem was left uh, without a leader it was leaderless now everything in Jerusalem changed though in the year 64 AD big year very important year Because that was the year the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was completed. It spent years years and years and years and years and years building this. And in 64 AD, it was completed. Now, you kind of think, oh, yes, temple completed. I'm sure it looked lovely. Great. But the reality was what the completion of the temple did was it put thousands of laborers out of work. The completion of the temple temple, just led led to mass unemployment. Nobody had any work anymore. He was employing thousands of people to build the thing. And if you know anything about history, mass employment often leads to civil unrest, and that is exactly what we see at this point. Two years after the temple is completed, the Jews revolted against the Romans. And actually, the the Jewish revolt they actually held out for four years against the Romans. The Romans were the finest army at the time and the jews held it for four years against them so they did pretty well but in the year 70 the romans finally put down the uprising completely destroying jerusalem temple everything they just raised the whole thing to the ground and burnt and they also what they also did was they burned every synagogue in israel to the ground basically saying to anybody don't mess with the Romans, OK, or we will just raise the whole thing, which is exactly what they did. Now, as a result of the destruction of Jerusalem, Christians scattered everywhere. And what they did when they scattered was they took the gospel message with them. And many of them settled in a city 300 miles north of Jerusalem called Antioch, a city called Antioch. Now, I'm just going to share something uh on on my screen here let me see if I can do that um yes it's a map so if you can see that map now if we can all see that I'm just going to leave it like that uh, can everyone see that great yeah so we have a map there now you'll see down kind of in the bottom right hand corner ish is Jerusalem and just slightly to the north that you've got Caesarea, and then if you keep going up, you've got Damascus, and then up north of that is Antioch. So that's the city we're talking about, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And I just want to talk a little bit about Antioch, so I'm going to leave that map up there just for a few moments. So Antioch was a much bigger city than Jerusalem. 500,000 people lived in Antioch at that time, which was a long time ago, so it was a big city. It was the third biggest city in the roman empire after rome and alexandria so big big city now after the destruction of jerusalem antioch became the center of christianity the hub city the main missionary sending city Antioch is also where jesus followers were first given the name christians now at first it was a a derogatory term used for them but soon the believers adopted it at first people are like oh christians you know but soon the believers like oh yeah okay we'll we'll take this name you know we'll call ourselves this name so they soon adopted it and in antioch a hugely significant thing happened okay this was mega right the jewish christians began sharing the gospel with gentiles non-jews now this hadn't really happened before up to this point the gospel was only really preached from Jewish people to Jewish people, you know, people from it with a Jewish background, other people with a Jewish background. So this was a big, big, big movement. Now, in the year 44, a guy arrived in Antioch who would take preaching to the Gentiles to new heights. And his name was. Paul, yes, I thought I'd I'd see if I get some feedback just to check you're all still there. Yeah, his name was Paul. Now, Paul's really interesting because Paul was a man of three cultures. Okay, so Paul was Jewish. Right. And not only was he Jewish, he was educated by the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. He wasn't just Jewish. He knew the Jewish scriptures like the back of his hand. You know, he knew his stuff. Right. So he had one foot in the Jewish culture, but he was also Greek and he spoke Greek fluently. Um, and he was familiar with Greek thought and literature and philosophy. Now, Greek was the was the, the main language at the time. It was almost like like what English is today in the world. It's kind of everybody's second language. So he spoke it fluently and he was familiar with Greek thought literature, but also that. So he had one foot in Jewish culture, he one foot in Greek culture, but also he had a foot in Roman culture because he was also a Roman citizen which gave him freedom of movement in the empire. He could go wherever he wanted. He was a Roman citizen. And he had protection on his travels. And that also gave him access to higher levels of society. So basically, he was the perfect guy to spread the gospel to the Gentile world. You know, it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he saved Paul. You know, it's like, it's God's like oh, I want this guy. Yeah, I can see that. You know, it's like God has a plan. Yeah, we know he has. But yeah, he did. So Paul then spends the next 10 years preaching the gospel and planting churches across the Roman Empire. And in the year 50, he plants the first church in Europe, in Philippi, which is what modern day Greece. In the year 57, he gets arrested, he gets sent to Rome and is eventually executed in Emperor Nero's severe persecution of Christians in Rome in the year 64. Um, so let's just briefly talk about Rome. Now, Rome is just about on our map. Um, it's just about on our map, right at the top left-hand corner. So Paul's gone a long way from Antioch to Rome. <coughs> but basically, in, in 64, in the year 64, so the same year, actually, that the Jewish temple was completed, in Rome in 64, a fire burned most of Rome to the ground. And and Nero, Emperor Nero, he needed a scapegoat, he needed someone to blame. So he blamed the Christians for starting it. Now, it's not true. We don't believe they did, but he needed to blame someone. And as a result, there was severe persecution of of Christians. Many Christians were crucified. Some were sewn into the skins of wild beasts. um, And large dogs were set on them and basically tore them to pieces. Um, women were tied to mad bulls and dragged to death. And after dark, many Christians were actually burned as evening lamps in Nero's garden for his garden party. You know, so you have these Christians just hanging up, just be doused in petrol and just set alight. That was the lighting for his garden party. Crazy. Peter and Paul um, were both in Rome at this time. And we believe they were both killed. They were both executed at this time in 64 in this period of, of severe persecution. Peter, the disciple, we believe he was crucified. But he asked that they wouldn't crucify him in the same way that his Lord was crucified. He asked that they would crucify him upside down. And they were like, well, you know, we're going to kill you anyway. So they crucified him upside down because he didn't, he didn't believe himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. So He was crucified upside down. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, and no Roman citizen would ever be subjected to crucifixion. Paul was beheaded, a much more humane way of being, of being killed. But they both died it would believe in Roman in 64 AD and this was the first systematic persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire in 64 AD. okay so where are we up to right so you can so you can know how long we've got to go. we've got quite a bit to go actually. it's the year 70 AD that's where we're up to. Jerusalem is destroyed Peter and Paul okay the the main dudes of you know leading the Christian church at that point Peter and Paul are both dead've both been executed. But what we've seen is the gospel has spread to the major cities of the Roman Empire, gone from Jerusalem to Antioch to Philippi to Rome. And it's not only Jews who are becoming Christians now, but Gentiles too. And what we're going to see in the next 250 years, between the year 70 and the year 312, is the gospel spreading not only to these cities, but right across the empire. Gospel goes viral despite increasing persecution. Now, I'm going to show you another map. Basically, by the year 300, the gospel has spread to all of the pink and all of the green bits of this map. Okay, so that's the the Roman Empire. It's spread from Jerusalem right across this whole area. It's spread to to Britain, really. It's it's, it's got to there by the year 300. And, And that's not bad going, really. Really not bad going, if you think. Um, of how fast it spread uh, spread out so let's take a look I'll just leave that map up there for a while Um, it just helps us a little bit so let's take a look from the year 70 to the year 312 basically the gospel explodes in growth despite persecution I think you've got that heading in in your notes now during this period the gospel spreads to France we know that there was a church in Lyon Uh, In France, by the year 150, it, it spreads to Britain, Spain, North Africa, even spreads as far as India. And by the year 300, no area of the Roman Empire was untouched by the gospel. And this period sees people getting saved and churches being planted at an absolutely astonishing rate. Now, big question, why did Christianity spread so rapidly at this time? Okay, four reasons. Number one, people just had this burning conviction to share the gospel. You know, they couldn't shut up about Jesus, essentially. They were telling people, they were sharing the gospel. The second reason is something called God-fearers. Now, the estimates are at this time uh, about seven percent of the population of the, of the Roman Empire was Jewish. Now, many of them were what's called God fearers. Now, God fearers were essentially they weren't Jewish by birth, but they were people who really liked the Jewish religion and kind of participated in it as much as they were allowed. But there's a lot of things they couldn't do because they weren't born Jewish. And basically, when Christianity came along. It meant that these God-fearers who really liked Judaism, uh, liked Ju- Judaism, what Christianity offered was it offered them what Judaism offered and more without having to get circumcised. So it was almost like, wow. So, uh, you know, it's great. The God-fearers like, wow, Christianity this is exactly what we want, you know? Judaism, then some, for non-Jews. This is, this is us. And the gospel got its most fruitful response from this group this was the most open group to the gospel in the roman empire okay so why did christianity spread so rapidly people's burning conviction to share the gospel number one god fears. number two number three christian love i mean christians at this time looked after the poor and the sick and the dying when other people just chucked them out in the street so non-christians would look at these christians and say wow see how these christians love one another you know it was it was compelling, We're like, wow, this is they've got something here. And it would lead to people getting saved, asking questions, and becoming Christians. That's the third reason, Christian love. And the fourth reason why Christianity spread so rapidly was because of persecution. Many people got converted after watching Christians being martyred, killed for their faith sometimes in the Colosseum where the, you know, they'd all be watching and they just watch the poise and the dignity with which they die and the which they would not stand back and they would not dishonor God. And then they were torn to pieces and people were like, you know what, those people have got something. And they would go and find out what's this thing they've got. And it would lead to people getting saved. So that's why Christianity spread so rapidly. People's burning conviction to share the gospel, God-fearers, Christian love, and persecution. Now, Next question. Maybe you're all asking this. Why were Christians persecuted during this time? Well, three reasons, really, why Christians were persecuted a lot during this time. The first reason was because of Christians' distinctive lifestyle. So if you think of for a pagan back then, every meal would begin with a liquid offering so they poured a liquid, it's kind of an offering to the gods and a prayer to the pagan gods. Christians are like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay, so you go to someone's house for dinner, they'd be pouring out this offering. Christians are like, no, we're not doing that. Also, most parties, if you are going to go to a party or a social event, most of them took place in the precincts of a temple dedicated to some pagan god. Christians are like, we're not going to go to those parties anymore. Christians no longer would go to the gladiatorial events because they said, these are, hu- are inhumane. We shouldn't be watching people tearing people apart um then also if you were a christian and you were like a mason or or you were a tailor all the work for a mason would have generally come from you know making stuff for the pagan temples. you know making statues for the pagan temples christians like no i'm not going to make that stuff anymore you know if you're a tailor a lot of your work came from making robes for the pagan priests christians like i'm not going to make robes for those pagan priests anymore also christians refused to kill unwanted babies which was common practice back then You had a baby you didn't want, you just chucked it out and let it die. That was common standard practice then. Christians are like, no, we won't do that. Christians also promoted chastity in marriage. They're like, if you're married, you just stick with that one person. You're not going to sleep around. You're not going to do all that kind of stuff. No, you stick with that one person. They also valued family life. And basically, all of these things made Christians social outcasts. Every one of these things a general population would look at a Christian who's doing these things and be like, that's so weird. You're such a weirdo. And and that is that distinctive lifestyle is what got them persecution. The second thing, so distinctive lifestyle was the first thing. The second thing that led to Christians being persecuted this time was rumors. Now people who weren't Christians, they, they, uh, they basically dis- they'd heard that Christians had this thing called, um, christians did this thing called um a holy kiss um so they did this thing called a holy kiss it was like a like a french kiss you can give someone a kiss on the cheek and that was kind of a way of greeting someone as a christian but non-christians heard about this this holy kiss and they're like holy kiss and the holy kiss kind of Room, the rumour mill got going, and basically it, 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 people are like, it's a holy kiss, and oh, they do all these things, and they do all these weird sexual things, and they have orgies, basically the rumour mill got going, and it spread around that Christians just have these mad wild orgies, people are like, oh wow, well, that's bad, isn't it, oh that's awful, and then they heard about the Lord's Supper, oh they eat flesh and blood, not only do they have these wild, wild orgies, but they're cannibals as well, wow these people are awful and then what's on top of that they heard that christians have imageless worship they don't worship a statue and they don't have a picture of their god that they bow down to no they just like pray but they're you know to god but, but he's like there's no picture or image and they're like wow imageless worship these christians they're atheists they have orgies they're cannibals and they're atheists This is awful. And and these rumors spread around and you know, and people are like, oh, this is awful. This is terrible. And also on top of that, because Christians didn't pay homage to the local pagan gods. Right. What happened was whenever a natural disaster happened, you know, whenever there was a flood, all the people would be like, well, I know why there's a flood. The reason there's a flood is because all those Christians didn't pay the get, do the sacrifice to the flood God. And the reason we've got a famine is because those Christians didn't pay the, the sacrifice to the to the famine God. And the reason and basically anything that went wrong, the Christians got blamed because they hadn't done the offerings to the God that particularly attached to that particular thing. So that's the second reason Christians got persecuted. Distinctive lifestyle, number one. Second reason they got persecuted was rumours. And the third reason that Christians got persecuted was their refusal to worship the emperor as God. Now, when the Romans conquered a people group, and you can see from that map, they conquered a lot of people groups. They generally allowed the people group to still practice their religion as long as they offered homage to Caesar. As long as they paid homage to Caesar, it's fine. If You can do the rest of your religion. That's okay. We'll leave you alone. Now, they made the exception for the Jews, though. The Jews didn't have to pay homage to Caesar. And as long as the Romans saw the Christians as just another sect of Judaism, as, as, as Jews, they were kind of protected from any pressure from the Romans, but when the Jews started to make it clear to the Romans, no, 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 hold on! These Christians, these are not Jews. No, these are not part of this. That Christianity was not actually part of Judaism. That's when the situation changed dramatically. The Romans are like, oh, hold on a minute! This Christianity thing is not part of Judaism. It's a separate religion. Okay, we got to make these guys pay homage, homage to, to Caesar like all the other like all the other um, religions. And also because you see, Judaism was a closed group you know, Jews were like a people set apart. You know, they, they weren't going around trying to convert people. You know, it was, you're a Jew, you're born a Jew, that's it, we're not going to try and convert people. That's, they didn't do that. Whereas Christians, on the other hand, were always talking about Jesus, always trying to convert others. Not only did they did they refuse to worship the emperor as God, but they were trying to convince everybody else to do the same. So that's the third reason they were persecuted, the refusal to worship the emperor as god now it may surprise you but severe persecution against christians from the roman empire where loads loads of people were killed you know systematic severe persecution wasn't actually that common during this period there were only four times in the first 300 years when emperors decided to really persecute christians but even then it was only for like a year or two for long periods, Christians were generally left in peace by Roman emperors. They generally left them alone. Now they were they were discriminated against um, by the general population, but systematic killing like wasn't as common as you might think. Still, it was certainly not easy being a Christian at the time. At this time, but despite this, Christianity continued to grow rapidly across the Roman Empire. Now, I think in your notes you have. A little kind of graphic. Um, it's from Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, uh, and basically Rodney Stark is a sociologist, historian, and he tried to basically chart how many Christians there were in the Roman Empire in the early church, um, uh, and what percentage of that was of the population. Now, let me see. Do you, do, you, do you guys have that in your notes? You've got that. You can see that. So I'm not going through it too much. But basically, I mean, I know he, he kind of doesn't take into consideration too much, you know, Pentecost, because like, well, 3,000 people got saved back then. He does not really taking that into consideration in the early numbers, because, you know, year 50, we're on 1,400. Um, but anyway, so he he reckons that in the year 40 AD, there's about 1,000 Christians which is 0.000 something of the population. Now the Roman Empire at this time, we believe was about 60 million. So that map we've got there, 60 million people living in the the, the pink and the green bits. Um, By the year 150, there were about 40,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, which is still 0.07% of the population. But but as, as Christianity exponentially grew by the year 250, there were one point one seven million Christians in the Roman Empire, which is one point nine percent of the population. And, and, and he reckons and, and this is generally believed to be, you know, not far off, that by a hundred by 350, the year 350, 33 million people in the Roman Empire had become Christians. So that's 1,000 by the year 40, 33 million by the year 350. So that's 56% of the entire Roman Empire is now Christian. I mean, imagine if 56% of the UK, you know, born again, believing Christians. You know, it was huge. I mean, this was massive growth. So so that's that's a little bit of the growth. Someone's asked me the difference between the senatorial and the imperial provinces on this map. I knew someone would ask me this. What's the difference between the pink and the green? Uh, basically, that the, it's the, the way that they were run. It's the way that those provinces were run. So uh, it's to do with the structure of the leadership of the administration of those of those provinces. I could say more on that, but um, probably Google it and you'll you'll get more. Um, you'll get more on that. Uh, from that. So I'm just going to stop the screen share there so I can see all of you again. Uh, there we go. Uh, let me just check our chat. Yes, that's the last question. Now, few more things and then we will have a coffee break. Now, around this time it was decided what was in the Bible. Uh, we call this the, the canon, the closing of the canon. Now in the first and second centuries after Jesus many writings were circulating amongst Christians now some early churches were using books and letters in the services that were definitely shall we call I think the theological term is a bit dodge a bit dodgy a bit like what is that you you know what is this heretical movements were rising so like you know weird kind of movements who are believing all weird and wacky things teaching crazy stuff and choosing their own writings author authoritative people soon realized the need to have a definitive list of the god-inspired books um and, and put that together and say look this is what we believe this is it and gradually it became pretty clear which books were truly genuine inspired by god and which ones were just a bit dodgy and the three kind of ways of deciding that were basically a book needed to have a self-evidencing quality so a book of the bible needed to have a self-evidencing quality these you know you just have a sense this book is just different there's just something about it this is there's something of god in this so that was the first way they used to, to think okay this is biblical The second way they decided whether something was going to go in the Bible was that it was used in Christian worship and it was God inspired. There was just something about it being used in Christian worship. And the third reason was that the book had ties to an apostle. Um, So basically it was either written by an apostle or someone with direct contact to an apostle. You know, so it was someone who was there. You know, somebody who somebody saw the thing. It wasn't, you know, someone writing. You know, five hundred years afterwards, and it, you know, it was it was it was primary source stuff. And pretty early on, it was pretty early on agreed what was exactly in the Bible. By about the year one hundred and ninety, most of the New Testament books were generally agreed on. Like, yeah, this is this is the New Testament. But it wasn't until the year 367 that the first complete list was almost like, yes, rubber stamp. This is definitely it. And it was written in an Easter letter written by the Bishop of Alexandria. Now, then we have some church councils in Hippo in North Africa in 393 and in Carthage in 397. They also published the same list, which was what was included in the New Testament. Um, so, so just to say, look, what was included in the New Testament, what was biblical, it wasn't decided in a thunderbolt. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Pentecost, boom, there you go, New Testament. It was decided after many years of thoughtful and prayerful reflection and, and practice. Um, what was decided? What is God's word? What is inspired here? Now, despite all this good stuff happening... Uh, you know, what was in the Bible being decided and the incredible growth of Christianity. Signs were beginning to show that things weren't all hunky-dory in the church, though. Paul uh, had appointed elders and deacons in the churches that he planted. Uh, By uh, by the year 100, churches became led not so much by a team of elders, but by one guy, and his name soon became a bishop. Before long, this bishop, bishop assumed leadership, not of just individual churches, but of all the churches in a city. And then this bishop appointed underbishops or priests to lead individual congregations. And over time, this individual leadership came to be abused. There was abuses of this leadership. Also, by about the year 200, most Christians had had started to believe that baptism cancelled out all the sins you'd committed up to that point, but that sins committed after your baptism they were a different matter. It, it, this this kind of this kind of belief just gradually seeped in, and, and by two hundred, most Christians believed this. And what they believed was you needed after you'd been after you'd been baptized, if you committed a sin. You needed to do stuff for those sins to be forgiven, which completely went against the grace of God and what we believe and what it teaches in the Bible. But people gradually came to believe and they also came to believe that three sins in particular, sexual immorality, murder and the denial of the faith were so serious that if you did them, you should be immediately kicked out of the church. OK, no ifs, no buts. You're out if you do those three things. And everyone believed back then, if you weren't, if you weren't in the church, you were going to hell. Okay, because there was no salvation outside of the church and and there only was one church. It wasn't like you could walk down the road to the local Methodist church or the local Anglican church and go to a different church. That was an option. There was one church. If you got kicked out of it, you were out and there was no salvation of the church. Everybody believed that. So so getting kicked out of church was a pretty terrifying thing. For people, now hold that in your mind. Then, in the year 250, now I mentioned that there was only a few times when the Roman emperors really did some really harsh persecution. Well, in the year 250, this was one of them. The Roman Emperor Decius began a really violent persecution against Christians for 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 about two years. He did this. Not totally sure why, but many Christians were imprisoned, tortured, and executed. Now, many Christians committed the third of those serious sins, and they denied their faith under severe, severe torture. They denied their faith under severe torture. Now, this led the church to this big dilemma. They had this big question. Okay, what do you do with these people who've denied the Lord? There's so many. There's loads of them. There's so many of them. Like, do we allow them back into the church? Or not? Like we've we've said really clearly, you deny the faith, you're out. That's it. So what do we do? Like how do we how do we solve this problem? So what they did was they came up. That was they set up a system to deal with the levels of guilt, and the you know the levels that they, they they've done wrong. You know, so like how much how much were you tortured before you give in? You know, like were you tortured for 10 days and you know, you lost an eye? OK, you give in. OK, well, we, no, that's not too bad. Or, or you just you just you give in after five minutes. OK, that's not good. You know, so it's almost this level of guilt. And they gave this system a name and they called this system penance. It's called penance. And basically what that meant was, penance is about depending on what what you had done, what you'd done wrong and how bad it was you would be told to do stuff to show how sorry you were and make up for what you had done wrong, you know? So if you've done if you'd done something wrong, I don't know, you, you could be told, okay, wear sackcloth and ashes for three days or, you know, say 50 Hail Marys or whatever. And you'd have to do these things. And only after you had done these things would you be allowed back into the church. And that is how the whole system of penance, big thing in the Catholic Church, is... It came came to be. Now just to say that the system of penance really went against the grace of God. But also what it did was it gave church leaders incredible power over people. You know, because people were terrified of going to hell. And over time the church began to really abuse this system to gain political power and prestige and money. You know? Like I think of myself like I'm a church leader, you know, I think having that power you know people are terrified of going to hell they don't want to leave the church and they do something wrong and I can basically just sit tell them to do whatever I want them to do so they'll come back into the church you know it's ah, really came to be abused over time by by church by the church leaders so that was the period year 70 to 312 AD where the gospel exploded in growth despite persecution now the period we're going to look at next is from the year 312 to, to 590. You know, you might be thinking 312 is a bit of an odd date to start the next section. I mean, can we not round that up or round that down or something? Well, the reason I've chosen this date to start a next section is because 312 was the year of one of the most significant events in all of church history. And that's because it was the year a guy called Constantine became the Roman Empire. Constantine became the Roman Empire in the year 312. But I think right now is a time for us to take 10 minutes. Go grab yourself a coffee. Um, We're going to come back. When we come back, I've got a Fun little task for you to do in breakout rooms. Very quick task, and then we will continue. Go grab yourself a coffee. I'll see you in ten minutes. Cool. So, uh, if most people are kind of back, I've got a little activity. What I w- I'd love you to do right now—just really five minutes, maybe five minutes. I'll put you in a breakout rooms. Don't. Well. I said don't think too much about it, but you may need to think lots about it. I'm just going to share my screen real quick again. So I just need you to take these down. So um let's see if I share that. So uh, I've got about seven or eight events in church history, and I'd just like you to put them in order, basically. They're 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 jumbled up here. So I want you to put them in order by date. So starting with the earliest to the the last. So basically, I'd love you to write them down in a sheet of paper and then in your groups, just decide, okay, number one for the earliest, number two for the second earliest, number three. Try not to use Google. I mean, you'll nail it if you use Google. If you touch Google, you'll get them all. But try and just have a go uh, and see where we get to. So uh, first one is the Canon is closed. The second one is William Carey goes to India. The church splits into the Orthodox and Roman churches. Martin Luther starts the Reformation. Billy Graham begins his crusades. Another type of crusade than the one we mentioned this morning. The crusades take place. The Romans destroy Jerusalem or destroy the temple. The Romans destroy the temple constantine becomes the roman emperor hint hint we may have just possibly talked about that and we'll talk about it so the apostle paul begins his missionary journeys clue this one doesn't come right at the end <laughs> okay breakout rooms should be open go in take five minutes and uh, and, and see if you can put them in order <laughs> I think that's everyone back. Uh, I'm going to do something really annoying right now. I'm not actually going to tell you. Uh, we're going to come back and do it at the end, which, and to be honest, I think probably by the time we get to the end, you won't even need it because we're going to cover most of the stuff anyway. But I just thought a little bit of a, an activity, get us talking, getting us churning some things over, had a few questions, a few messages. Uh, Carol has has just said, she did a a church history course, um, just to answer Andy's earlier question, imperial provinces fell directly under the emperor, senatorial provinces were administered at the discretion of the senate, so that might help answer your question, Andy, so it's just the way they were run, the way they were administered. Um, Then we have a question about penance um, about, you know, why this system system still exists, it's kind of, if it's invented by man to instill fear, I, I don't think it was invented to instill fear, I think it gradually became used to do that, I think it was invented to solve a problem that the church had, Um, how much it's used in the catholic church today i mean it probably varies a bit i would say and why the catholic church still uses this today i mean you're asking the wrong person i don't go to a church that practices it and i wouldn't so i think you need to ask someone else about that one really but it's a very good question um yeah thanks for those for those questions everyone um so yeah we're gonna we're gonna keep going um so yeah if you stick yourself on mute keep your keep your cameras on that would be great so where are we up to we are up to 312 to 590 basically everything changes after Constantine because the year before 312 and in the year 311 the previous Roman Emperor Galerius died. Now his death ended eight years of the most severe persecution Christians had ever ever faced. Let me just put myself on on there. Many Christians were tortured and and killed at this time. And and basically what happened, there was a power struggle for who would be the next emperor. And in 312, one of the contenders for the throne, a young guy called Constantine, marched his army over the Alps and faced his rival outside of Rome. Now, before the battle, Constantine had a dream. And in it, he saw a cross and the words, in this sign, conquer. He wins the battle. He becomes emperor and kind of off the back of this dream, he he converts to Christianity. Now, some doubt how genuine his conversion was because he still did what emperors normally did. You know, he conspired, he had people killed and stuff like that. But there were there were definitely there definitely was a change in his life. And he allowed uh, Christian ministers exemption from taxes. He abolished crucifixion and gladiatorial events because he said they were inhumane. He made Sunday a public holiday. He gave generously to new churches being built. And he had his family brought up as Christians and was baptised shortly before his death in 337. Now, one of the significant things Constantine did was he made a new capital for the empire in what we know today as Turkey. And he called his new capital Constantinople. And it remained called that for 1600 years until in 1930, the Turks changed its name to... Istanbul. It's called Istanbul to this day. Now, from this point on, there will be tension between the old capital, Rome, the old capital of the empire, and the new capital of the empire that Constantine had made, Constantinople. And we will talk a bit more about that uh, later. Now, it's hard to stress just how hugely significant Constantine becoming emperor was for Christianity. Okay, so uh, first thing, State persecution of Christians was ended overnight, you know, so emperors doing this thing where they just, you know, they got a bit on a bit of a whim they just say let's just kill some Christians that was God. Before Constantine Christianity had been outlawed and persecuted. Now Christianity was favored and pampered. Prior to Constantine, the church was full of full on Christians. Willing to die for their faith because if you became a Christian, then you knew you were signing up to something that could get you thrown to the lions. Okay, so there was, you know, there was, there was no half-hearted hangers on there. You know, you were in it for the right reasons. After Constantine, though, uh, the church and Christianity became, started to become infiltrated by, I don't know what the word, like po- politically ambitious people who weren't really interested in Jesus And because because of that, church gradually became diluted and used for political purposes. You know, you basically had people thinking like, okay, Constantine's a Christian. He likes the church. If I say I like the church and go to the church, maybe I'll get a promotion in the civil service. You know, it was that kind of an attitude. You know, church can get me on a level here in my career. And it wasn't wasn't long before Constantine made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. By 380, one of the emperors who came after Constantine actually made belief in Christianity compulsory. Okay, now think about that. In the year 311, you could get killed by the authorities for being a Christian, and many people did. Only 70 years later, okay, so in some people's lifetime, you could get killed by the authorities. For not being a Christian, And right? that is a huge difference, massive. That's the massive difference that Constantine made. Now, one of the re- results of Christianity becoming the state religion was that lots of arguments began over theology. Now, it's it's the you know basically what happened was Christians at that point were kind of concentrated on staying alive. And now, you know, that threat was no longer there. So they're like, okay, let's have debates and arguments over theology. You know, they had a bit more time and mind space to kind of get stuck into each other about theological differences. Now, the biggest dispute arose from a guy called Arius in 318. And Arius said Christ isn't fully God. He's a lesser being. Now, Constantine needed Christianity united because he was using it to help him unite his empire. So what he did is he called a church council in 325, in a place near Constantinople called Nicaea, and 300 bishops. He summoned 300 bishops there, and many of these bishops had suffered terribly under persecution. Okay, so this is this is this is 325. They'd suffered under persecution just 14 years previous, when you know there's persecution in 311. Some of these bishops who were invited by Constantine to this big place, all pomp, ceremony, under imperial guard, everything, some of these bishops who were invited were crippled because of the persecution they'd endured just 14 years earlier. Some of them couldn't use their hands, you know, because they'd been tortured so severely. Another one had only one eye because one of his eyes were gouged out in the persecution. But here they are, these bishops who'd endured horrible persecution as the honored guests of the emperor okay so no longer were christians being burned as like lights in the emperor's garden they were being invited as the honored guests around the emperor's table to eat to talk to discuss all expenses paid protected by his guards massive change must have been sometimes i think it must have been completely surreal for these bishops you know like what is going on? Like, we're sitting with the emperor, you know? Like, we used to run from emperors, you know? Now, the council at Nicaea decided Arius was wrong. Jesus was God, not less than him. And a crucial part of the trinity, um, you know, really was clarifying, like, yeah, this is what we believe. And as part of the council, they came up with a creed or a statement of belief, which summed up what they believed as Christians. And I think you have it in your notes that it's called the Nicene, creed fantastic creed just says like this is what we believe as christians fantastic summary of christian belief you can read that in your own time now constantine then he held a banquet to celebrate this you know this this council and all the agreement that they would reached and at the count at their celebration he he kissed the the, the cheek of the bishop who had lost an eye through persecution as this real symbolic sign of the new friendship between the empire and the church. It was a really important symbolic moment. This bishop standing with one eye that had been gouged out by the previous emperor Here the emperor is saying, I'm going to kiss you on the cheek. This is a, this is a new moment for the church. And as a result of this union between church and state, church between church and state theology now became under imperial control it came under the emperor's control because he needed the church united he needed to have theological unity to unite his empire through christianity so when there were theological disputes the emperor would call a church council and have the leaders sorted out not the church leaders emperor would call it he'd summon them and be like right sort this out now now, there were many more councils in the years to come, which condemned heresy and further clarified Christian beliefs and doctrines. Now, after Constantine, moral decay set into the church. At one time, people led down their lives for their faith. Now, people in the church just fought each other for positions of influence and lots of factionalism and infighting group. Around this time, monasticism began to appear. People who basically no longer liked what they saw in the state church began to retreat into the desert for prayers, to spend time with God, read his word, in silence and solitude. Now, the first monk is, 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 is a guy called Antony. He's called Antony the Great, given the great name. Uh, and in 250 AD, he went into Egypt at 20 years of age. Uh, he, he gave his wealth away and lived in ex- seclusion in the Egyptian desert. Um, he's the first monk, Antony, went into the Egyptian desert. Um, and then the first monastery, so the first kind of group where monks kind of come together for seclusion, started in the year 320. Now, monasticism started out as this radical movement of people who just wanted to live for Jesus with everything they had. I mean, it was great. And over time, monks became really well respected as spiritual leaders compared to lots of the, the power-hungry people who seemed to be now running the church. And over time, as people realized the state of the church, monks were increasingly appointed to leadership positions in the church because people recognized that these guys were the real deal. You know, they didn't, they didn't care about money and power, they just wanted to live for Jesus. And these are the guys, these are the guys. You know, these are the guys we want running the church. I mean, these were the guys who, who, who were on it. Right? And one such guy who made, a, who made a huge impact on the church was a guy called Augustine. Now, Augustine was born in 354 in Algeria, what we know today as modern day Algeria. Now, as a young man, he spent a lot of time partying and sleeping around. But then uh, he says, one time I, I, I was in a garden. And Augustine, he says, I I heard the voice of a child say, take and read. And he says, just there was a New Testament. So I picked it up, opened it up, and it, it fell to Romans chapter 13, verse 13 to 14, which says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Augustine said when he read those verses, he said it was as if the light of peace was poured into his heart and all the shades of doubt faded away. In 391, a while after that, he became the leader of of the church in Hippo in a city in northern algeria would known in northern algeria today and one of the things uh, i love about augustine was when he you know he's a brilliant writer brilliant theologian did loads of things but one of the things i love about augustine was when he was dying he couldn't leave his bed so he got someone to stick the psalms to the wall of his bedroom and on the ceiling so he could just read them all the time. So he'd like wake up, open his eyes, and he'd just be reading the Psalms. You know, he couldn't move completely bedridden, but that he did. Augustine is one of, the, is one of if not the most significant Christian writers and theologians in all of church history. There's so many, so much stuff that you probably believe that he was the one who fleshed out. He was the one who was like, oh, no, no this, is, this is what this means, and this is what this means. You know, we, we don't fully get how big he, he was and, and, and the things that he did. His writings have helped shape theology ever since, and they're still widely read today. And and one of my favorite quotes in in church history is from Augustine. You may have heard of it. Uh, It's one of those lovely quotes that you get put in a picture frame and stick it on your wall. It says this, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you lord you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you fantastic quote from augustine yeah great christmas present get it in to frame give it to someone they'll love it really good now probably one of the most famous monks uh, was a guy called benedict and in the year 529 he set up the monte cassino monastery which is what we in what we know today as modern day Italy. it's the most famous monastery in europe it's where Benedictine monks, that whole kind of movement began. And Benedict, he wrote what's called the Rule of St. Benedict, which is a, a set of regulations for how to live as a monk. And what was great about his rule was that it was kind of balanced. A lot of the rules for monks back then was so severe, so harsh. But Benedict was like, you know, I'm... I recognize that we're humans, you know, we need some rest, we need to eat, we need to do that, you know, so he, he did this balanced rule of of how to live as a monk, and, and Benedictine, that Benedictine rule, that Benedictine way of being a monk, spread all over Western Europe, and Benedictine monks were incredibly significant in the Middle Ages. Basically, Benedictine monks, they gave the only opportunity for, for study, if you wanted to study, you'd go to the monastery, or for protection because they were protected or for rest. And, and actually, monks at this time were a fantastic missionary force. You know, they spread the gospel, they spread the word, they were really good. And Benedictines, basically, Benedictines have set up monasticism as we know it. You know, so if you, when you think of monks, you will think of Benedictine monks. That's, that's just, that's just how, how significant they are. Now, this period also saw the emergent, emergence of the Pope. Now, the church in Rome had, had, had been an important church from very early on, okay, because Rome was the capital city of the empire, it was the largest and wealthiest church, there were lots of converts, lots of people who got saved, the Roman church had a, had a reputation for good theology and for being charitable, um, it was a big church, um you know but we believe by the year 250 the the church in rome so the, all the combined churches in rome would have numbered about 30,000 people so it, it was a pretty significant church it was the biggest of all the churches in the biggest city in the wealthiest city and also peter and paul met their end there you know so there's almost like a kind of significance about that you know peter and paul that's that's where they ended that's where they were martyred they you know they were regarded as the founders of the church of rome which you know is fair yeah and because of these reasons, that the Church of Rome became very influential, the Church in Rome. It's the bishop of the Church of Rome was very respected by the other bishops. Um, but certainly up to the time of Constantine, there's no evidence that the Bishop of Rome had any official control over the other churches outside Rome. Just just influence, just respect. It was really that. Now, Constantinople obviously came the new capital. And then the Bishop of Constantinople, he obviously got his power from the emperor. Okay, so, you know, when Constantine set up Constantinople, he, he made a bishop there and the bishop got his power and his prestige from the emperor. What that meant was the Bishop of Rome, you know, he didn't have that, you know, that patronage coming from the emperor. So the Bishop of Rome gradually had to appeal to another form of authority to keep its kind of kudos. So the, the Bishop of Rome gradually began to appeal to Peter and Paul for authority. You know, so the, the Bishop of Constantinople would be like, oh, yeah, Constantine, he's my guy. He's the guy give me my job, you know, whereas the Bishop of Rome, oh, you've got Constantine. I've got Peter and Paul. All right. Yeah, way better. You know, it became that kind of a, a bit of competition. Now, in the year 440, Rome got a new bishop. His name was Leo. And in his first sermon, he proclaimed himself not just the head of the church in Rome, but he proclaimed himself the head of all the churches in Christendom. Now, this was the first time the Bishop of Rome had claimed authority over all the other churches. Before then, it was just kind of influence and respect. Five years later, the Roman emperor made it law that the Bishop of Rome had authority over all of Christendom. And before long, the Bishop of Rome began to began referring to himself by a different name. He began to refer to himself not as the Bishop of Rome anymore, but he began to refer to himself as the Pope, which simply means Papa. That's what the Pope means. So another development was that in in, uh, in 452 AD, Attila the Hun, okay, that famous warrior king, reached the outskirts of Rome, and the bishop of Rome, Leo, he was the one, not the emperor, he was the one who went out and negotiated with Attila the Hun, and he did such a good job of negotiating, again, that Attila the Hun actually withdrew, and the people were all like, wow, like, the Pope, like Pope Leo the bishop, he's the one who saved our skin, not the Roman Empire. He's the one who's gone out and and saved our skin. So people really healed the Bishop of Rome, Leo, this this Pope that he called himself. They healed him, not the Emperor, as the saviour of Rome. Now, by this stage, the Roman Empire was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And three years later, Rome was plundered by another foreign invader, and it was Leo pope leo not the emperor who represented the people and helped them through it and basically because of these two events the people of rome began to see the pope as their leader rather than the increasingly weak emperor so that was a significant change now as we approach the end of the early church era the roman emperor is empire is crumbling okay it's falling apart and by the year 476 after a series of invasions by Germanic kind of, they're called barbarian, but they're Germanic tribes. My wife's German, so I have to be careful what I say here, but these Germanic barbarian tribes invade the Roman Empire. and, and, And basically, the Roman Empire finally collapses, just disintegrates in 476. Now, with no Roman Empire to bring order anymore, a power vacuum emerges. And the result is lots and lots and lots of wars and battles and destruction and bloodshed, crazy stuff happened. Europe pretty much just descends into utter chaos, utter utter chaos. The church becomes pretty much the only institution that isn't destroyed at this time isn't obliterated so increasingly people start to look to the church for hope and security as everything around them is completely disintegrating and in the year 590 a guy called Gregory becomes Pope and he's the first monk to become Pope now Gregory was a strong leader in uncertain times and because of this people started to look to him not just for spiritual leadership but political leadership, too. Therefore, after Gregory, the Pope was no longer viewed as, uh, only as a church leader, but now as an important political leader, too. And that view increased as the years went on. Now, during this chaotic time, monasteries grew to be the centers of Christian life and learning and mission. They kept copies of the early Bible manuscripts. They taught theology, they evangelized. Monasteries were the light in this dark period. And over the next few hundred years, monasteries sent out thousands of monks to evangelize the many warring tribes across Europe. And they led many, many people to Christ. The first barbarian chief to convert was a guy called Clovis, Uh, who was king of the Franks, that was in the at the end of the 400s. And I mean, this is an interesting way, but uh, he gets converted. And then then he he gets baptized, but he doesn't just get baptized. He gets his army of 3000 troops to get baptized with him. You know, it's like, I'm, you know, it's like, I've got converted, right? Preach to my troops you're all converted to. you're all getting baptized to, and they're all dunked in the water. You know, it's like, okay, right. You know, no one has no ifs, no buts. So it was, it was an interesting time. It wouldn't have been wouldn't be my way of doing it, but it, that, that's what happened. Um, and one of the most successful, successful monastic missionary movements at this time um, was, was started by a guy called Patrick. Yeah, St. Patrick, you know, the one we drink Guinness for, in, you know, on the 17th of March. In in 432, um, he kind of set up this base in Ireland to basically evangelize Britain and the European continent. He established monasteries, and he sent guys out and established monasteries in the UK, right across the UK, in Germany, in Switzerland, in northern Italy. I mean, Patrick and his Irish missionary movement played an important role in evangelizing post-Roman empire Europe so next time you have a pint of Guinness to remember Saint Patrick he was one of the dudes of church history I mean he really took Jesus across Europe my wife is German she's from Munich actually I was talking to her dad and, and he was like her dad really likes history he was like do you know Irish monks brought Christianity to Munich and if you look where Munich is in Europe, it's a long way from Ireland, you know. And it was it was Patrick and his guys and his descendants who who took the gospel um, took the gospel to, to there. So that concludes the early church period from 29 to 590. Now, how are we all doing, everyone? Are we surviving? Are we good. We've got some thumbs up. Now I'm gonna. I'm going to, if you do have questions, stick them in the chat. After we get through our next section, I'll, I'll pause again. We'll have some questions. We'll have another coffee break, but I'm going to just keep pushing on. Um, I've got another map. For those of you who love maps, I've got another one for you. So this is going to be a good one. So next, we're going to look at the Middle Ages where things get a bit messy. Okay, so let me get my map up here. All right. So share screen. That's it. Okay, so we have this map here. Now, so let me just explain. So when, when Constantine made Constantinople his, his capital, which you can see just in, I'm trying to think, slightly to the right of the center of the map, you'll see Constantinople. So when Constantine made Constantinople his capital, a rivalry began between the old capital, Rome, and the new capital, Constantinople. And this rivalry soon began to divide the church. The church in the east of Europe looked to the Bishop of Constantinople for leadership, and the church in the west of Europe looked to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, for leadership. Now, tensions grow over the years until in the year 1054, the church finally split in two. It's the first church, church split, certainly in Europe anyway, there being other ones, um, but the church finally split into the Catholic Church in the west of Europe, ruled by the Bishop of Rome, and the Orthodox Church in the east, ruled by the Bishop of Constantinople. This was the first official church split. Up to that point, there'd only been one church, the church. Now there were two. There was the Roman Catholic Church in the west, and there was the Orthodox Church in the East. Now the Orthodox Church soon spread to Greece, Bulgaria, Ukraine and Russia and Romania and is it, and still the biggest religion in these countries today. Now when it comes to what Orthodox Christians believe, they do believe a lot of the same things as us. It just looks much different in worship and in practice. Now, for Orthodox Christians, icons are very, very important. They're very, very important. Uh, You know, in in terms of Orthodox Christians, their their focus in terms of theology is is very much on the fact that we as humans are are made in the image of God. uh, And they believe that sin reduces the image of God within us. It makes us less like God, less like Jesus. And salvation for the Orthodox believer is the perfection of the full image of God within us. So for them, the the reason Christ came to earth was to restore the, the icon or the full image of God in us. Okay, so, you know, so for them. Icons are very important. If you go to an Orthodox believer's house, you go to the living room, there'll be an icon of Jesus and some saints maybe in the corner. That's very important that they have that there. And they almost kind of believe that those icons are almost like a window between heaven and earth. You know, So for us, our focus as believers is very much on us being made right with God. For them, it, 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 it's not that they don't believe that. It's just that they really have a, a much different focus. It's a real different focus on what, on, on what they what they believe, what they, what they focus on. So I'm just going to stop the screen share uh, there. Now, around this time, the Pope was, was becoming more and more powerful, uh, mainly because he had two powerful weapons at his disposal that no other political leader was able to use. Now, the first of these weapons was excommunication, and the second of these weapons was something called an interdict. Okay, now the first of these things, excommunication was something that was used against individuals, and interdict was something that was used against nations. Okay, now basically, excommunication is when the Pope you say something the Pope doesn't like, and he says, "Right, you're excommunicated. You're out of the church. You're gone." Okay, we're done with you. An interdict is when the Pope basically excommunicates an entire nation. You know, so like a king does something that the pope doesn't like. The pope says, "Your entire, you and your entire nation are excommunicated. All your churches, all your priesthood, not valid. Doesn't matter anymore." You know, so like very powerful weapons, weren't they? So the pope had these two powerful weapons, and, and one pope at this time used or threatened to use interdicts eighty five times. Against uncooperative kings in his reign. I mean, ah, incredible power. Another pope at this time uh, had a disagreement with Henry IV, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the most powerful political ruler at this time. And basically, Henry had this argument with the pope, and Henry said that the pope was unfit to be pope. He basically said, You're a rubbish pope, right? And the pope excommunicated him, right? And, and Henry basically, his, his people were like, You can't be excommunicated. We can't have a king that's excommunicated. They just can't. So his people and all his advisors, were like, you've got to go back to him, you've got to beg him to let you back into the church. So Henry, the most powerful political leader in the whole era at that time, goes to the Pope, begs the Pope barefoot for forgiveness for three days, you know, the Pope's like, you want in, beg, and he has to beg for three days in barefoot before the Pope, the Pope eventually forgives him, and lets him back into the church, you know, like, incredible power that the Pope's had then. now by the 1200s, by the 1200s, the church and the Pope was now incredibly powerful, the strength of the Pope and the church was strengthened even more at this time by the formalizing of the theology of the Catholic Church. And one of the key figures in this was a guy called Thomas Aquinas. You may have heard of him. Now, Aquinas' main book was called Summa Theologica, and in it he formalized the theology of the Catholic Church. Things such as submission to the Pope for salvation, uh, treasury of merit, penance purgatory he helped make standard belief he helped make these things standard belief in the catholic church and all this further strengthened the power of the church and the pope i'm gonna take a breath (laughs) i can see lots of people writing i'm giving you a break give your hand a break okay we're all good thumbs up we're all surviving we'll have a coffee soon um we're gonna have a coffee after the Crusades because we, we might need one, I think, after we've done the Crusades. And it's a pretty awful kind of chapter in Christian history. I'm never quite sure what Billy Graham called his you know, revivals the Crusades. and anyway, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna leave that one. Now around this time, Islamic forces were now invading large areas of the Middle East. Islam started, in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, what we know Saudi Arabia in 570 with the Prophet Muhammad. He told his wife he'd been visited by an angel, and that angel had told him to recite what he saw. And the result was the Quran. And people began to follow him. Islam is born, it grows, and it grows rapidly over the next few centuries through invasion and conquest. And before long, um, the, the, the Islamist forces had taken Israel. Now, this was a big thing. It's the Holy Land. Wow. Muslims have taken the Holy Land. You know, a lot of Christians, like we can't let this be. So in, in the year 1095, in response, the Pope proclaimed a thing called a crusade to go and retake the Holy Lands back from the Muslims. And what the Pope did was he promised crusaders full forgiveness of their past sins if they'd go and do this you know it just shows how far the pope had gone from the teachings of jesus you know forget jesus i'll i'll offer you forgiveness of your sins if you go and kill people in the middle east he's like what you know it's, it's just crazy you know it's like the gospel had just disappeared you know so in 10 the year 1095 five, five thousand knights and infantrymen go and they capture jerusalem Um, And then what the Pope does is he introduced forgiveness of sins, not just for those who went to fight on the Crusades, but for those who gave money to the cause. You know, so if you donated a big chunk of money to help the Crusades, you'd also get a certificate to say your sins were all forgiven as well. Now, a hundred years later, after they captured Jerusalem, the Muslims retake Jerusalem. They take it back. And in response, three European kings. Frederick of Germany, Richard the Lionheart of England, you may have heard of him, Richard the Lionheart, and Philip of France lead another crusade to go and retake Jerusalem. Like, right, we're gonna take this back, guys. But it doesn't go well though. Basically, Frederick of Germany, he drowns on the way there. Okay, so we've just got Richard and Philip left. But Richard and Philip argue so much that Philip decides: stuff this, I'm going home. Okay, so it's just Richard left. And Richard fails to fails to retake Jerusalem. And eventually he goes home himself. Ten years later, the pope sends another crusade to go and retake Jerusalem. Now, this crusade can, I think, accurately be described as an epic fail, OK? Epic fail of a crusade. You're going to do a crusade. Just don't do what these guys do, OK? Um, so basically what happens, to pay for the shipping to get to Israel. Um, the Venetians, so the people of Venice, they persuaded the Crusaders to attack a Christian town nearby called Zara that the Venetians didn't like. We're like we don't like these people. It was a Christian town, but they're like, we don't like them. Before you go to Israel, could you just attack these guys for us, and then you know we'll bring you to Israel? So the Crusaders are like, okay, let's do that. So they go, they destroy this little town called Zara. Then the Venetians uh, persuaded the Crusaders to attack Constantinople. You're like, why bother go to Israel and attack the Muslims? Constantinople, go and attack that one. And the Crusaders are like, yeah, okay, let's do that. So they go to Constantinople and they ransack the place and basically just forgot about going to the holy lands and came home. And that was it. That was the end of the Crusades. That's the end of the era of the Crusades, which ended in in 1291, when Acre, the last stronghold of the Christian nations in the Holy Lands, fell to the Muslims. So uh, the Crusades were a complete failure. You know, they didn't win the Holy Land back or stop the advance of Islam or heal the split between the Catholic and Orthodox churches. The, The Crusades show us the terrible state the church was in back then the Crusades show us that the church and particularly the pope had forgotten two very important things firstly christianity is not about special geographic places you know god lives in each of his followers through the holy spirit not buildings or temples and and secondly war and bloodshed are never the way to extend god's kingdom you know that comes through evangelism sharing the good news you know the The church had completely lost sight of this. The Crusades had nothing to do with the gospel. They were primarily about politics and so-called church leaders abusing their power to lure people into war. Awful period in history. The Crusades can definitely go down as one of the darkest periods in church history. You know, so someone does say to you sometimes the Crusades were awful. Yeah, don't disagree. Just be like, yeah, I know (laughs) they were. They really, really were. Now, these were dark times in, in church history, but Jesus and the gospel weren't totally forgotten. There were some gl- little glimmers of hope. There's a guy called Arnold in an area of, of, called Brescia in northern Italy, and he called the church to, to give up its property, stop being corrupt, and return to the way of the apostles. But in 1155, His beliefs were so radical and sounds pretty good to us right now, doesn't it? But his beliefs were so radical back then that he was executed for these beliefs. You know, just saying to the church, give up your property, give up your wealth and get back to the way of the apostles. He was killed for that. Around the same time, a guy called Peter Waldo in France gave all his stuff away and translated bits of the Bible into French and sent followers out in twos into the countryside, the French countryside to teach people God's word. And these 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 people who went out, they became known as the Waldenses. And it was a movement that, that spread across Southern France and they made scripture their authority. And you're thinking, okay, good glimmer of hope here. That's good. And in Italy, St. Francis of Assisi also formed a group of preachers. And like Waldo, they went around Italy sharing God's word with the people who ever would want want to listen. Now, the power of the Pope reached its height in the 1200s, and we'll, we'll, we'll pause for a coffee soon. I'll just get through this a little bit. The power of the Pope reached its height in the 1200s, but by the 1300s, it was starting to weaken. Now, around this time, Philip I of France another very powerful leader in Europe had a power struggle with the pope but unlike Henry in the past Philip he won his power struggle basically Philip wanted to tax the clergy the ministers the priests in his country of France now the pope said no you can't tax them all the money from them comes to me The Pope said, if you do this, if you tax the clergy, he says that he would excommunicate Philip. So basically, now, normally in the past, this would work and the king would back down and be like, oh, okay, I'll I'll back down. I'll not do that. But basically, what Philip did, which I kind of find hilarious, was Philip just sent some guys to Rome and they beat up the Pope. (laughs) He just sent some guys to Rome and they give him a kicking. And, and actually, they gave him such a kicking that the Pope died a few days later, a few weeks later, actually. And, and what they showed was that European rulers, political rulers, no longer accepted the Pope's interference in political matters. They were no longer going to just take a, an excommunication or an interdict and back down. They were going to push back and they were going to fight. And this moment came to symbolize the descent of the power of. Of the Pope, just as Henry IV begging for forgiveness a couple hundred years earlier had symbolised its ascent two centuries earlier. Now the power of the Pope was further weakened in the in the late 1300s when, when through a, a bit of a mess up, two popes were appointed. Now you're kind of thinking, how does that happen? You know, it's a bit of a mess up. You know, you only have one Pope. You know, he's the head. What happens when you got two? But first through a mess up, they end up having two popes appointed. Basically, what happened is in April 1378, a new pope was appointed. Um, now what happened, how a pope was appointed was something called the College of Cardinals would kind of say, right, this is who we believe the Pope should be. So they had appointed this pope, but then later that year, they changed their minds and said, No, nah, we shouldn't have appointed that guy as Pope. We've changed our minds. So they appointed another pope. OK, so there's now two popes because the first guy was like, well, I'm not stepping back from being pope. You made me one. I'm sticking as pope. So you've got two popes. So like, OK, what do we do? So to sort this, sort this out, they needed to have a church council to sort it out. Now, the big problem was in church law, the only person who could call a church council was the pope. And they couldn't decide who the pope was. It was like, well, is he the pope or is he the pope? So. They couldn't even have a church council to sort it out because they couldn't decide who was the pope to say who would call the church council in the first place. Uh, So for 39 years, there were two popes. Now, after 39 years, they managed to, you know, through loopholes and whatever, they managed to cobble together a church council. And basically what they did was they sacked both popes and appointed a new one. Right. They thought, okay, great. Problem solved problem was though that the sacked popes didn't accept this decision and they were like yeah no we're still popes so they had this church council to go for to try and get from two popes to one pope and they ended up with three popes so it was like an absolute epic fail it was like oh my goodness what is going on so they have another church council and they sacked all three popes and appointed a new one and that kind of seemed to do the trick but this all further weakened the power of the Pope. And to cap all this off, a guy called Rodrigo Borgia. Now, there's a TV series called The Borgias. It's, you know, very graphic and full of, you know, sex and violence. So I'm not encouraging you to watch it. But this guy, Federico Borgia, he became Pope in 1492. And I mean, like this guy, he took corruption and immorality and greed to just new levels never before seen in the papacy like like he he didn't even try and hide it i mean he was just awful in every way and proud about it and didn't hide it he seemed only concerned with getting wealth and status for his family couldn't care less about the gospel the bible anything and this further weakened the power of the pope now A few more things just to mention before we finish this section and we all go for a well-earned coffee break. Now, the Middle Ages, I did tell you earlier, it was a messy time. Are we all in agreement that it was messy? Yes, (laughs) this was a messy time. The Middle Ages were a dark time in church history, but I'm going to end it on a positive note because, you know, I don't want you to be depressed while you're drinking your coffee here. We want to have a little bit of joy while we're having our coffee and biscuit in a bit, Okay. I'm going to end on a positive note by telling you i want to tell you about two absolute dudes in church history okay these were top dogs all right the first was a guy called john Wycliffe. now john Wycliffe was an oxford academic in the late 1300s and he challenged many traditional beliefs of the catholic church because he could just find no reference for them in the bible he'd be just like why are we doing this this is not in the bible and he kept saying that and he challenged indulgences you know you, Buying forgiveness of sin, he challenged the adoration of saints, kind of praying to saints, all that treasury of merits, you know, building up good to try and get you into heaven. He, he challenged the worship of images. He's like, where is that in the Bible? And and the idea that men need priests to mediate between them and God. He's like, he's pushing back. He's saying, like, we shouldn't be doing this. This is not biblical. Now, what was revolutionary about John Wycliffe basically was that he read the Bible. He actually opened up and read it like not many people did that back then. And what he did was he used the Bible as his yardstick to judge the church rather than the church being the yardstick to judge the Bible. He flipped it and he was eventually silenced academically at Oxford. He probably would have been killed, but he had some friends in high places and he was basically forbidden to write or teach there. So basically what he did was he turned to the peasants in the villages and he got the Bible translated into English and he he, he put it up into little bits and he sent out his followers out two by two into the English countryside preaching the word. And this spread and these people became known as the Lollards. And there's just this little glimmer of hope spreading the gospel in the countryside and people getting saved. Now, the second dude I wanted to mention to you before we have coffee, someone who was greatly influenced by Wycliffe's writings was a guy called Jan Hus. Now Jan Hus was the rector of one of the main churches in Prague, capital of what we know today as Czech Republic. And Jan Hus preached against the abuses of the Catholic Church like Wycliffe. And eventually, he was imprisoned because that was very unpopular. And he was told to recant, or he would be burnt at the stake. He'd be burnt alive. He refused to recant. So on July the sixth, fourteen fifteen, he was brought to the place of his execution. And on the way, he was led past a bonfire of his books. They were just they were burning his books, just trying to get into his head. And. Um, and as he walked past this bonfire of his books being burned he laughed and he told bystanders don't believe the lies they say about me and he was asked one more time you know as they're as they're lighting the wood beneath him to burn him he was asked one more time to recant and he said this god is my witness the evidence against me is false i have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning men if possible from their sins in the truth of the gospel i have written taught and preached today i will gladly die and they burned him to death and i I, every time i read that like i well up a bit i'm like wow i mean gosh what courage in the face face of death so yeah john Wycliffe, jan Hus, absolute dudes you know name your kids after them whatever they they're, they're quality guys so after all the mess of the middle ages we begin to see these glimmers of hope the bible and the gospel are starting to be rediscovered change is coming and it's it's about to speed up because dramatically because of a new invention okay In 1439, this is massive. This is probably one of the biggest inventions ever made in history. In 1439, a guy called Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, the printing press is, is one of the most important inventions in history. It's up there with the internet, okay? It quite simply changed the world as we know it um up to that point before then if you'd want to like get some information out about something you'd you know you'd write your your book or your pamphlet and then you'd have to get some manuscript uh, people who would copy it for you and they'd have to write it out by hand you know it took ages you might get about you know 50 copies done and you have 50 copies of it now if someone didn't like what you'd written they could easily track down those 50 copies and, you know get rid of them burn them you know so if you're trying to tell people about the gospel and what the bible actually says it's very easy for the authorities to track down what you've written and get rid of it but after the printing press was 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 invented all of a sudden you could write about the gospel and what the bible actually says take it to a printing press and rather than you know some scribes copying 50 copies for you you can just take a printing press and say i'll have fifty thousand copies made please and you just send it right right across Europe and basically it massively transformed how quickly you could disseminate information and that was impossible for the authorities to get rid of all those all those copies. Then not long after the printing press was invented a guy called Martin Luther came on the scene. Now remember that name but I mean you've, you've all heard of him remember that name because Martin Luther is one of the most important figures in history never mind church history in history. He's probably the most important person you will learn about today. He believed very similar things to Jan Hus and John Wycliffe. But unlike them, he managed to transform the entire European church beyond recognition and change the face of Christendom forever through something he started called the Reformation. And one of the reasons he succeeded where Wycliffe and Hus didn't was because he came after the invention of the printing press, whereas they became before it. You know, Wycliffe could write some stuff, get 20 copies made of it, but just really easy to track it down and burn it. That was what the authorities would do. Luther, he'd get 20,000 copies done. You know, impossible to track down. And that's why the printing press was such a significant invention. And that concludes the Middle Ages period of church history from 390 to Fifteen, seventeen.